George Lavender here. Before this next Making Contact show, just a reminder that if you like what you're hearing, you can go to our website, radioproject.org, and click on the heart-shaped donate button in the top right-hand corner. We rely on donations from listeners like you to keep us putting out the shows every week, as well as bring you new voices and stories with our Community Storytelling Fellowship. Thanks a lot, and here's the show. I'm Andrew Stelzer, and this is Making Contact. My highs were always extreme. I remember this one time where I hopped in my car. I'm driving from Los Angeles back to Toronto. Day two, day three of no sleep. And I feel that euphoria kicking again. I'm feeling fantastic. I'm driving through um, Zion National Park. I hit a deer at 70 miles per hour. I totaled my car. Barely made it through. Barely made it through, it was really scary. There I am and the car was still working. Drove home the whole way, but still feeling this euphoria. My life wasn't always so out of control. My name is Ross McKenzie Jr. When I was young, my future looked bright. Star athlete, class valedictorian, lots of friends, and a picture-perfect family. And I was robbed. Ross McKenzie was diagnosed with bipolar disorder, but after 15 years on lithium, he wasn't getting any better. He decided to take matters into his own hands, get off the drug, and find out why so many people are being told they have mental illnesses. This week on Making Contact, we bring you an abridged version of the film Bipolarized, Rethinking Mental Illness, chronicling McKenzie's journey. At 21, I had a psychotic break that got me arrested and institutionalized. I was diagnosed with bipolar disorder and put on lithium. My life changed the minute I was slapped with that label 20 years ago. When I was hospitalized, I was told by psychiatrists and by doctors, you're going to have to take this medication for the rest of your life. And probably the, the worst thing they said that was the hardest thing to hear at the time is, you know, don't expect to do anything special with your life. Um, you're not going to really amount to anything, so you're going to have to live a very simple, quiet existence. It's a very uh, painful experience to go through. When he was medicated, um, he was certainly not anything like the son I had known. It was very frightening. I didn't see any emotion. I mean, he sat in a chair and didn't move for months. It was horrible to watch. He just appeared that this was more numbness. And all I could think at the time was, get your butt off that couch or that chair. But I knew that he couldn't do it. Was I bipolar? I don't know. What I do know is that I felt isolated and different from those around me. The drugs were hurting me more than helping. 
something didn't feel right. I questioned my diagnosis and the lithium that sucked the life out of me. I was determined to get my life back. In February 2010, I went to an experimental clinic in Costa Rica to safely detox off of lithium. I knew from experience that to do so without the proper medical support could be dangerous, even fatal. So in the last five years, I attempted uh, twice to go off of lithium. And what I learned is that I did it um, under not safe and not proper conditions. And both of those years had really kind of disastrous consequences, extreme lows two, three months of uh, debilitating depression where I couldn't pick myself up off the floor. It's February 4th, so I've been here for a couple days now. You can see you've just got little underneath here, I've got these little electrodes right at the top of my temples. And again, just stimulating currents into the, uh, into the brain. The last few days have been excruciating. I kind of wandered around, I couldn't sleep, body aching. Just started vomiting the stuff up everywhere, body rejecting it. Literally felt like I was going to die. Can't wait to see my mom back home and uh, my friends and my family. Tonight is the last night that I will ever be taking lithium again for the rest of my life. I've been told and I've been assured that once it's released and detoxed um, and then the repair is taking place that my brain function is going to come back full force. I can't quite imagine what it's going to feel like but I'm, I'm, I know it's going to feel fantastic. It's been about a year and a half, just over a year and a half, that I've been off of lithium, and um, it's been amazing to feel myself getting my life back. As I started coming out of the fog, it was clear I had more questions. What are some of these psychotropic drugs doing to us? I drive to Austin, Texas for the answer. I reunite with my friend Gwen Olson. She's the one who told me about the clinic in Costa Rica. Gwen was the top sales rep for some of the biggest pharma companies. Now, she's their top critic. Oh my gosh, you're here. Hi. How are you doing? <laughs> so good to see you. It's good to see you too. Oh my gosh, you look so good. Oh, I cannot too. believe how healthy you are since the last time I saw you. I know, it's a little bit different since the last just, time we got Just up. a tad. Yeah, I know, I know. No, no minor meltdowns, I take it, no. since I last saw you. No, that was a bit of a, an interesting ride. Before I detox, I was on lithium for 16 years. And you know, I know that was a long time. Every time I bring that up, especially people that are like, wow, you know, mm -hmm. it's a long, long time. But... 16 years is a very long time, and I understand your concern about right. that. But lithium is a natural salt, okay? Right. It's highly toxic, as right. you know, right. but it is something natural. Whereas the other drugs are synthetics, right. and you never generally find a psychiatric patient that's just on one or two drugs. They're cocktail. normally on a cocktail of various drugs. Right. And that's where I see the biggest problem with those individuals who have been on long-term psychiatric treatment with a number of different drugs. Right. They seem to have the greatest difficulty in weaning off of the drugs because those drugs are actually designed to be addicting. Right. 
Right. You've been on a drug for 15 years mm -hmm. and you get off of it in two weeks time, you're going to go right. into an absolute tailspin. Right. And they know that. But then when you come back two weeks later and you're having a meltdown, you're going to be told that, well, we're sorry, but you're going to have to be on these drugs for the rest of your life because you have a brain chemistry imbalance and you know this is what we have to do to treat it. Right. So that's the way that they keep everyone captive, everyone right. prisoner in the system and on the drugs. So now not only do you have depression, now you're so severely depressed that you can't get out of bed, you can't function, you can't work. Or not only did you have anxiety, but now you're having panic attacks because you know of the withdrawal from the drugs. And people do not identify that as withdrawal. What they think is that they're having an exacerbation of their disease own disease symptoms, exactly, and then they freak out and they go back on the drugs for the rest of their lives. This is a disease. It's a spiritual disease as much as it is anything else. There are so many different things that can lead to psychiatric symptoms. Get to the root of it all. And once you have, then you'll know all the answers. I learned pretty early on and when I was young to um, keep my mouth shut. When I would go to speak up, uh, it wasn't accepted very well and it would get shut down. Let's, let's get to the root cause of these issues. Let's find out. So people then buy into this. I have this disease. I'm told I'm going to have to kind of deal with these symptoms and, and manage these symptoms for the rest of my life, but no room for transformation, no room for healing. And actually, I found myself getting really pissed off about that. Where does the personality end and the disease begin? It's important for me not to be afraid of the anxiety. The freakouts are real. And the freakouts are not because I'm sick, but because I'm human. I get to feel upset. I get to feel sadness. I get to feel anger. I really like the fact that I get to feel all of my emotions. My father died before I started this journey. He never got to see me off the drugs. Everybody's world was rocked because here's this prodigal son excelling at everything and then all of a sudden something's off. The state he was in, the amount of weight he had lost, I just said, you know, you could be in jeopardy of having a heart attack. Will you come to the hospital with me? So he said, oh my God, yeah, of course. And we went into the hospital and there, the whole family was there. The doctor was there and it was clear that they needed to admit him. There were pieces of Ross that came out that I'd never witnessed before. I remember him turning to my dad and going, so what the fuck do you think of me now? I'm a big chick magnet, I drive a convertible. Fucking proud of me now? So the truth was coming out. And my dad, he didn't know what to do with this. Ross somewhat got trapped in the mirror of my father, if that makes any sense. There was a lot of pressure in terms of being the number one athlete, in terms of, you know, whether it was scholastically, whether it was socially. I think Ross felt a lot of pressure to live up to whatever it was my dad expected of him, which was a lot. So it was May 3rd, 2012, and we're on our way to uh, Philadelphia to the American Psychiatric Association Conference. Uh, it's at the headquarters in Philadelphia. 
and there were, there's also going to be a global uh, demonstration going on. I have no idea of the numbers, what to expect, um, but I know that it's been promoted for the last few months. It's taken me a long time to find my voice, but once in Philly, I find others who aren't afraid to speak up. Laura Delano was diagnosed bipolar as a teenager. She treated her symptoms with drugs and quietly accepted her condition. Until now. It is an honor to be able to call myself a psychiatric survivor, especially one representing my generation. My generation has grown up believing that if we can't focus on our work because we're distracted by the boy we have a crush on, by the upcoming game we're playing in, or by the constant bombardment of media from which we can't escape, we have a brain disease, and subsequently medicated with brightly colored capsules and better tasting pills. During my 13 years in the mental health system, I believed that I was broken and incapable of being fixed, that I needed psychiatry to create a life that came anywhere close to being considered normal, that my emotional suffering was due to something wrong with my brain and not to the fact that I was a young girl trying to make sense of herself in a culture based so much on performance, achievement, and perfection, that the emptiness I felt inside was because I was severely borderline. I kept waiting and waiting for the day to come when my psychiatrist and my medications would give me a life worth living, and that day never came. Instead, my life became lonelier, emptier, and number than it had ever been before. The profound anger I have today for those still labeled and still trapped within the biomedical paradigm of psychiatry is a healthy one that fuels me and motivates me to do whatever I can to make a change. I'm here today as a psychiatric survivor. I'm a psychiatric survivor. I'm a psychiatric survivor. The first time I ever met the psychiatrist, he gave me six prescriptions. Prozac, Zoloft, Trazodone, Topamax, which I ended up overdosing on. I had lithium toxicity at age 16. Uh, Wellbutrin, Trazodone, and Lamictal. I'm a licensed psychologist. Two-year-olds who have temper tantrums are told that they have bipolar disease and they're medicating young children and they're absolutely destroying lives. My favorite label of all of them was an at-risk. You know, I, I don't know what they're protesting. If they're protesting being labeled, say like bipolar, it would be like saying somebody's labeled because they have cancer. And is that a label? I, I don't think it's a label per se. I think it's a condition of the mind, and it's eminently treatable. So that's what psychiatrist tries to do. It tries to resume, restore normal functioning. I've traveled 600 miles. It's the first time I've traveled alone in 11 years. It's that important to me. I'm here today to rip up my bipolar label. This book is the root cause of the protesters' anger. It's the book that creates all these labels. The Diagnostic and Statistical Manual of Mental Disorders, or the DSM for short. It's often referred to as the Bible of Psychiatry. Published by the American Psychiatric Association, it's used by clinicians and psychiatrists to diagnose psychiatric illnesses. The current edition has 365 diagnoses and defines the ways our brains can go awry. Once a label gets dispensed, that means drugs can be prescribed to treat it. For Robert Whitaker, the labels didn't make sense. 
So he made a career debunking what he calls the myths behind mental disorders. From 1994 to 1998, I had a company that reported on the business aspects of bringing new drugs to market. Came upon studies by the World Health Organization that found that patients diagnosed with schizophrenia in the poor countries of the world did better, much better than in the rich countries of the world. And so I wanted to know why. I found that patients in the poor countries weren't being maintained on medications long term, most of them. And this belied everything I knew as a journalist to be true, because my understanding was anybody diagnosed with schizophrenia needed to be on the meds for life because they were like insulin for diabetes. And then once I began reporting on it and researching, it became clear to me that the story we as a society were telling ourselves about making great advances in understanding the biology of mental disorders and great advances in treating mental disorders, it wasn't a true story. And that myth, that delusion, was causing a great deal of harm. Why do you think we're seeing such an increase in psych labels and psych medications? The, the only real way to understand it is through a capitalistic lens. So you make drugs. What do you want to do? You want to increase the market, right? So the way you increase the market is you expand the definitions of who needs the drug, right? I remember calling up someone at a uh, pharmaceutical company. I asked him about the chemical imbalance theory. And he says, well, it's not really true. And I said, what do you mean it's not true? Uh, we say that to get people to take their drugs. He said that to you? Yeah, and I'm like, oh, I didn't know that. <laughs> it's a business success story. What are your thoughts today with the DSM-5 coming out? What are your, what are your thoughts on the DSM-5? Listen, everybody's going to be in DSM-5. Every single person can find themselves in DSM-5. Actually, I think they can find themselves in DSM-4. But trust me, you'll be in DSM-5, I'll be in DSM-5, and it means... I'm already in DSM-3 and 4. Okay, you're already in 3 and 4. <laughs> Technically. But what I'm saying is, they'll have so many categories of feelings, emotions, moods, that uh, if you go to a psychiatrist, or actually if you go to your doctor complaining of some unease, you will be eligible for a diagnosis and a treatment. Here's what is really, really exciting about what just got discovered and what's going on. A man by the name of Alan Francis, who is literally lead editor of the fourth edition of the Psychiatrics Diagnostics, Diagnostic Statistics Manual, <clears throat> he is actually coming out to say that what he has done and the manual that he created, he's actually mortified by. And I want to just read a quote because I think it's really important. This is Alan Francis quoted as saying, we made mistakes that had terrible consequences with the Diagnostic Statistics Manual number four. Diagnosis of autism, attention deficit hyperactivity disorder, and bipolar disorder skyrocketed. And Francis thinks that his manual inadvertently facilitated these epidemics and in the bargain, fostered an increasing tendency to chalk up life's difficulties to mental illness and then treat them with psychiatric drugs. Again, this isn't about an attack on everyone. This is about let's create the awareness, let's actually get things right, and let's move forward in creating a new reality so we can get people help and not actually get people into a situation where there's more and more sickness and illness being created that actually isn't even real and doesn't even exist. You're listening to Making Contact. Because of generous support from listeners like you, this show is distributed for free to radio stations in the U.S., Canada, Australia, and South Africa. To find out how to support us, download shows, or get our podcasts, go to radioproject.org. Like us on Facebook and follow us on Twitter. Our handle is making underscore contact. We now return to hear more of the film Bipolarized, Rethinking Mental Illness. When Ross was really young, he was, I, I saw him as this really sensitive um, 
person who everything affected him really deeply. Um, and he didn't really show his emotions all that much. I mean, he'd go and hide to show, like, to express his emotions. Stand and listen and look people in the eye and be... So I always felt really protective of him. It's like I was always watching and making sure he was okay, and it wasn't easy growing up in our family. We talked about everything, but how we felt about things wasn't always okay. So we kind of had to keep that to ourselves or or be told that we were wrong for feeling the way we felt. Whatever move we made, we were always going to get in trouble for something. I know someone who can help me confront my feelings, feelings that I buried for so long. Dr. Charles Whitfield is a physician based in Atlanta, Georgia, and specializes in psychological trauma and recovery. We met last year at a mental health conference and have been in touch since. Well, what I've noticed with my countless number of patients over the decades is that when I take a careful history, including a, a, a drug intake and a trauma history, probably more than half have, in fact, PTSD, post-traumatic stress disorder. When I, when I hear the term post-traumatic stress disorder, I'm, I'm think like immediately my brain goes to like people that have come back from the war and, and veterans and things like that. So um, how does that relate even to to me, you know. In your childhood growing up, uh, what was your family of origin like and how did your parents and siblings and other people around you treat you? My father wanted a son forever. So we always called Ross the golden child. <laughs> And he grew up in a pretty overpowering family, a very strong, domineering father who liked to take up space. I've also been blessed with three wonderful children. But I don't tell them this enough, and I want to tell it to them in front of all of you. I am particularly proud because not only are they sensitive to people, all three of them, but in their own way, they're carving out their own personalities and they believe in what they believe. And they, it isn't always what Don and I believe, but they have the strength and the, the courage to go ahead and do it anyway. He viewed us as a reflection of him and an extension of him. So when we didn't measure up, and he was a very tough man on himself, if we didn't quite measure up, then um, that, that scared him. If Ross excelled, my dad felt okay about himself. There was a lack of a separation of where my dad ended and Ross began. He could be verbally abusive, he could be physically abusive, he could be emotionally abusive. He, he did that a lot with Ross. He'd be running back and forth across the ice, screaming and yelling every time my brother, like, even let a shot get close. I guess Ross just really never spoke up. I mean, he kind of just squashed it in. So he ragefully, verbally, and psychologically, emotionally abused you, then, it sounds like. Yeah, 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 there's quite a bit of that. See, that's the most common cause of child abuse, except that it's more subtle, 
and it's harder to remember and it's harder to put together and realize that that was really abuse. It sounds to me like you probably don't have bipolar. So that it, I wasn't dealing with, and I wasn't bipolar at all, I was actually dealing with post-traumatic stress. Correct. It is a really special day today. Today is the day we're actually driving to San Diego to see Peter Levine. Uh, Peter Levine is a person who's created um, somatic experiencing. Uh, the core of this work uh, is about trauma. It's about releasing trauma from the body that actually gets held stuck in the body. And there's a lot of anger still sitting in the body. And it makes sense to me. Um, because what I learned from a very young age, it wasn't okay to express anger. And so, you know, when I would have it, situations like that, I would just constantly swallow it. Do you want to say a little bit about your anger? Growing up, uh, it wasn't okay to express it. Yeah. And how is it to be with it now, with the aggression? It's, it's, a, it's okay, I still notice that it's, it's a scary place to go to. Yeah. yeah. So let's just go inside for a little bit now and just explore your inner experience and just report what you're noticing. I just, I just remember the, the terror. Do you see yourself with your father? Yeah. Pay attention, Ross! See the, the very large, man who is uh, sitting in shame. This is really important that you're able to see that, the shame that's underneath this rage. And now maybe see if you're able to allow an image to come up to see your father around the age of seven, to see him as a child around that same age. Yeah, I see it. You see it. Can you also imagine seeing you at that age also together there with your father at age seven? Yeah, we look like twins. We're both at that they age. They look like twins. Yeah, we're actually enjoying each other's company. Yeah, really the enjoyment just to be together. Yeah. And he's encouraging. Encouraging, yeah. Yeah, I must have been really, really proud, huh? Proud of you. Also notice too just that that exercise of going back and having my seven year old play with my mm -hmm. father's seven-year-old was, there was a real shift in um, compassion. Exactly, exactly. It started to develop right when you could see him as struggling with his own being shamed. You can certainly easily imagine his father doing similar things or worse. Yeah, his mother always told him how much she hated him every day. Yeah. And his father was uh, alcoholic and um, very abusive. Yeah. It's actually it's quite remarkable 
the men that he turned out with, with his flaws, considering what he yes. went through. Right, and to know from that place of compassion that he did the best that he could. I've been feeling amazing, especially these last few months. More focus, more concentration, the ability to get, like, get things done and stay focused for long periods of time. Something I never, you know, last year at this time wasn't even a possibility for me. The most important thing of all of it has been about healing um, the stuff with my dad and I, this incredible, incredible guy, and we had our stuff to work out. And so as I come to the end of this journey, we're going to go back to where my sisters and I delivered my father's ashes in his favorite fishing hole. This was a place where we spent a lot of time together. It was kind of like a ritual coming up here. And because this is where I feel I'm the strongest, this would be a great place to have closure and to be able to really move forward. All the challenges, all the stuff I was working through, all the anger that I had for so many years, doesn't feel like it's a part of me anymore. And that's it for this edition of Making Contact. You've been listening to the film Bipolarized, Rethinking Mental Illness. Special thanks to Specialty Studios. To learn more about the film, check out our website, radioproject.org. That's also where you can download past shows, get our podcast, and make a difference by supporting our work. Like us on Facebook or follow us on Twitter. Our handle is making underscore contact. I'm Andrew Stelzer. Thanks for listening to Making Contact.